Let's go ahead and have a seat, please. And uh, we'll start our class a few minutes late. Okay, we are now embarking on a on the uh, second division of the book of Leviticus. And basically, we're going to look at the fact that only a holy sacrifice can only be offered by holy priests. Now, those of you who are avid note-takers may remember that originally the first division of Leviticus incorporated chapters 1 through 10. But I changed my mind. I'm, I'm qualified to do that since I'm, one, I'm kind of learning as I go along here. Uh, the book of Leviticus was never my specialty, uh, you know, when I was teaching. And uh, so I have delighted in studying uh, more in depth the uh, book. And I'm getting blessed tremendously. I hope that that comes across in the class. But uh, I've decided that now the first uh, part of Leviticus, which we said, uh, be, you know, is developing the overall theme that holiness is essential for being in God's presence. That not everybody just, you know, the, the man off the street can't just decide, you know, I'd like to be in God's presence. I wonder how I could do that. Well, you couldn't, all right? Because sinful mankind has no possibility of dwelling with God, to be in his presence. There has to be, something has to happen to change our condition. And so that change is we need to be made holy. Not something we can do ourselves, but something that God can do for us. All right, so now I've changed the first point to say God can dwell with mankind only through holy sacrifice. And we find that in chapters 1 through 7, we've completed our discussion of all those different sacrifices that uh, the priests were instructed about and that now they're going to have to offer for themselves in chapters 8 through 10. Second main point, okay, so mankind can dwell with God only through holy sacrifice, and not just anybody can offer that sacrifice. They have to be holy priests. Now, as you've probably realized at this point, there are various nuances to the concept of holiness. One of the first ones is that something that is holy is set apart exclusively for our holy God's use. And that can be a person, it can be a thing. This is not an ethical, so to speak, uh, use of the term. Uh, It just means, well, what has God chosen to uh, qualify a thing, say, to be used for him? What has God chosen? Whom has God chosen to be a representative for him to dwell in his presence, to draw others to his presence? And uh, so that's 
That's the concept of holy here, that God has chosen the tribe of Levi to be set apart, especially for his use in representing man, sinful man, to a holy God. That's their purpose now. Remember back uh, during the time of the Exodus, uh, basically uh, the Lord uh, killed every single firstborn uh, male of the of the Egyptians. And then he told Israel, well, I am setting aside one tribe out of 10, 12, excuse me, to be set apart for me to be my priests. This is going to be where priests come from. And then specifically, uh, priests were going to be from the Aaronic lineage. All right, so God has made his choices here. He's set these, these principles in place. And so we're going to now begin talking about how holy sacrifice can be offered only by holy priests. Set apart, these are the ones who are designated by God to be a special, what a highly privileged position this was for the priests. They were the ones who now could be God's representatives. They would, their, their activity would be what God intended for sinful man to be represented and to be, and so atonement could be made for them so they too could become holy enough to dwell in his presence. All right, so let's take a look at this. Holy priests, we're going to see, first of all, in chapter 8, verses 1 through 36. Do you think we can make it through 36 verses today? I don't know. I'm going to give it a try. (laughs) Uh, Must go through a ceremony of ordination. Now, ceremonies are vitally important for marking momentous events. Uh, And they usually involve some sort of special attire and result in a new status. All right? Special attire and a new status. So can you think of an analogy that God has given us in uh, human life? Can anybody think of a ceremony that involves special attire and results in a new status? Yeah, a wedding. I mean, the bride wears a beautiful dress that she will, hopefully, never wear again. Gets stored away in the closet. Maybe a granddaughter thinks it'd be a cool idea to wear grandma's wedding dress, and so uh, maybe it'll get worn again by somebody else in the family or a daughter wanted to... Uh, no, that wouldn't work. Well, I don't know, it might. But well, whoever, you know, probably it's just going to sit there until uh, somebody does something with it. And uh, the, the groom wears a special tuxedo, except for sometimes these days. I see a lot of wedding pictures because I'm friends with 
gazillions of former students, and especially the ones who live out west, they, they don't rent tuxedos. They get a clean pair of jeans, and they wear their western shirt with their bolo string tie and a cowboy hat, and uh, that's, that's good enough. Okay, well, you know, if that's what they want to do, that's fine. That's, that's special for them, I guess. Uh, to, but anyway, I'm not going to get into that debate. So the, the groom wears a fancy tuxedo. <clears throat> the groomsmen wear fancy tuxedos. The bridesmaids wear fancy dresses. And even the flower girl and the ring bearer all get all dressed up. Man, oh man, it's, it's fancy to the nines. And um, we, we basically realize that the reason why we dress that way is because this wedding is such a special event. And then there's this change in status. Before the ceremony, we had two people. They are in love with each other. But, you know, the, the night before the wedding... The, the groom was where he was. The bride was, was where she was. All that day, the <clears throat> bride kept her appearance secret from the groom. And uh, they are not married. And then the ceremony takes place. Wow. Change in status. Two become one. Now just stop and think about the radical nature of that change of status. Maybe before the the wedding ceremony, the groom has been used to doing whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. He's sadly sleeping by himself every night, anticipating a time when he's married to his sweetheart. And then... uh, but uh, they're, they're two different people. Then the wedding ceremony takes place. I will never forget August 9th, 1980 at, at uh, Sheridan Baptist Church. Now, wait a minute. First, what was the name of it? What is it? Yeah, whatever. <laughs> South Sheridan Baptist Church. I got, yeah, it's okay, it's okay. I remembered the date. And uh, uh, Pastor Ed Nelson was the officiant. And uh, so there we are, we're standing there. And it was somebody's bright idea to turn the, the swamp cooler that was taking the temperature down in the main auditorium. It was their idea to turn it off. Wow, At, uh, <clears throat> when it's 100, it was 104 degrees outside that day. It doesn't usually get that hot in Denver, but it was that day. And uh, so we're going along, and, and uh, Pastor Nelson kind of whispers to me, are you getting hot? <laughs> and I was about ready to pass out. That's probably why he asked the question. And so they, they turned the coolers back on. And the, but then 
the most amazing thing happened. It was time for our vows. Now, you know, I've spent a lot of time looking into my wife's beautiful eyes. We go on date days once a week on Wednesday. We have a great time. But I have never seen her look at me since the wedding ceremony like she did that day. We, we stared into each other's eyes, and it was like we were staring into each other's soul. And when we made our vows to each other, I stood there overwhelmed by the fact that unseen, God had just made out of two people, one person. It was almost palpable. It was the most astounding thing, other than my salvation, that I've ever experienced. And so we left, not separately, we left together in our getaway car. We, we had it planned out so that Linda's brothers couldn't give us a tough time. Uh, you know. But anyway, and so we have delighted in living together since that ceremony. Wow, that's what you call a massive change in status. And so before this ordination service, we had Aaron, we had various sons of Aaron that are all now going to go through this ordination ceremony. Their status is going to be massively changed and they're going to wear very special clothing, as we will see. The Levitical priest was a mediator between sinners and their holy God. Now, does anybody remember where in the book of Exodus we encountered a need for a mediator? Anybody know what event that was? Here are the children of Israel. They're encamped around the front area of of Mount Sinai. God calls Moses up to the mount and says, now look, tell the people, go back down, tell the people, nobody's supposed to teach, nobody can touch the mountain when I I come down and display my, my glory. No one can touch that mountain or they're going to die. Okay? Then what happens? God comes down on the, mo- on the mountain. The mountain shakes violently. There is God's glory veiled in a cloud, but there is lightning and thunder, and the people are scared absolutely senseless. All right, let's go back to Genesis chapter 20 and we'll see why people need a mediator. Exodus chapter 20, verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, 
the people were afraid, probably more scared than they'd ever been in their lives, and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. The people are realizing the amazing holiness of their God. And they want someone who is going to hear what God says to him, and then Moses will speak those commands to the people. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. All right, so there is Moses, who is the first mediator. And uh, we're going to, when we get into the book of Deuteronomy someday, (laughs) I don't know when that's going to be, but when we get there someday, we're going to see that in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord says, well, I'm I'm going to uh, raise up a uh, person like Moses, and uh, he's going to be your mediator, your ultimate mediator, and you'd better listen to him because I will require it at the hand of everyone who doesn't listen to him. The ordination ceremony for the priests consisted of seven parts. It lasted seven days. So seven parts, seven days each part ending with the same refrain, as the Lord commanded Moses. Everything in this ceremony was a result of what God had specifically commanded Moses to do. Nothing was left to doubt. I mean, when when you're planning a wedding ceremony, there are certain parts that, you know, you're expected to to have as a part of the ceremony, but there is some optional aspects to the ceremony that the, the, groom, the potential groom and bride discuss with each other before they actually go through the ceremony. There was nothing optional about any of these seven steps. They had to be done exactly as the Lord told Moses. Okay, so we're going to take a look at each of these uh, seven steps. But before we get there, let's take a look at what uh, the Lord instructed uh, concerning both the high priest's attire for this ceremony and the regular priests who assisted the high priest. So let's go to chapter 8, Leviticus chapter 8. And uh, we're going to see here uh, in verse 6, And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with a robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band 
uh, of the ephod around him, binding him with the band. And he placed the breastplate on him. And on the breastplate, he put the urim and the thummim. We'll talk about what those are. And he set the turban on his head. And on the turban front, he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Who remembers what was engraved on that pure gold band that went across his turban? Holiness to the Lord. Yep. Kodesh Layala. And that is, that completed his attire. So let's take a look at these one at a time. First of all, they wore undergarments. They are so that uh, <clears throat> when they were elevated, nothing uh, could be seen of their uh, parts that would uh, cause the Lord to be displeased with them. These are made of fine twisted linen. Then, number two, uh, they got a tunic. This is the same word used in, in Genesis 3, 21. Basically, it was a fine woven, uh, made of fine lo- woven linen. And essentially, this tunic uh, was something that covered, it was a typical thing that people would wear in Israel if you were a male. It covered your body from basically your neck down to nearly your feet. So fine twisted linen, and it was dyed purple, a blue, and scarlet. All these basic, oh, excuse me, that was fine woven linen. I'm, I'm going down one there. Then the sash. Basically, this is what was made from blue, purple, and scarlet. And uh, it was uh, like something like a belt, but not exactly. It probably held the uh, tunic in place. And then there was the robe. It was, you put it on something like a poncho. It had a hole uh, slit in the top. It had a collar all around it so that the, the robe did not become unraveled at the top. Also made it, no doubt, more comfortable for the, for the high priest to wear it. And uh, it had uh, embroidery on it. Pomegranates were embroidered on the hem of the robe. Uh, it had bells. Uh, every other, well, you know, there'd be a pomegranate, then there'd be a gold bell, and then another pomegranate and gold bell all the way around the hem. And this was made uh, of expensive blue material. All right, so it went over the uh, tunic and once again uh, extended down well past the high priest's knees. Next, the ephod. Uh, this was held uh, tied around the priest's torso. Uh, we don't know if it went below the belt or the sash or above the sash, but um, you know we, we've never seen, of course, an actual depiction of what the high priest looked like. So we don't we don't know exactly where it was positioned. Probably tied 
around his chest. This was made of fine, twisted linen embroidered with blue, purple, and scarlet. And this thing was made with uh, gold threads woven into the, the structure of the material. All these colors, especially gold, were colors that very high officials within a king's government would typically wear. This is not what the ordinary Israelite wore. Nowhere near it. Remember, back in Exodus, who made these particular garments? Well, under the uh, guidance of of, uh, people like Bezalel, of whom it is said that he was filled with God's spirit to make basically supernaturally enabled, amazing things. And one of those things was the high priest's garments. This this was beautiful beyond uh, anything anybody had ever seen. All right, then... Uh, a square pouch, uh, ha- uh, basically, uh, that held the Urim and the Thummim, was attached to the ephod, uh, and probably on the shoulders, and uh, displayed uh, the 12 uh, precious stones of each tribe of Israel. So these stones were set uh, in place. And, and they're specified as to what exactly what kind of stones they were. Uh, they were all precious stones, very valuable. And uh, the tribe's name was engraved on each of those stones. That was held in place. Uh, this breastplate was held in place uh, by four gold rings that were attached to the ephod. Then we had the turban, uh, kind of a head wrap thing, and it was made of fine linen. And finally, as I mentioned, the solid gold plate that went across the front of the turban, and that was the uh, had the uh, the uh, statement "Holy to the Lord" on it. So that's quite a bit of clothing the high priest is wearing. It's beautiful beyond belief. No doubt the Israelites had never seen anything quite this beautiful. I suppose that even in the ancient courts of Egypt, uh, the attendance to the Pharaoh didn't look as amazing as the high priest did. Here's a depiction. I suppose this is pretty much the way he looked. We, we just don't know for sure, but it set him apart as special to the nth degree. And that's, by the way, one of the nuances of holiness, that something that is holy is special to the point of uniqueness. There's nothing else like it. And so, Basically, nobody else came anywhere close to being attired like the royal kings 
main attendant, the one he had set apart to present the most important sacrifice in Israel's calendar, the sacrifice on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And on that day, he was the only one who could ever go behind the thick veil that separated the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was from the holy place where you had the table of showbread, you had the, ca- the lampstand, and the table of incense. Only once a year, only the high priest himself could go behind that veil. Keep that in mind, because we've got a passage coming up in chapter 10, where we're going to see one of the possibilities of the strange fire that Nadab and Abihu offered was that they attempted to go into the Holy of Holies, which they were not authorized to do, and which cost them their lives. All right, now, what would the regular priests offer? Yes, Peggy. How do we know what? God did, Aaron. After he died, we don't know how they chose the next ones. My guess is the previous high priest chose his successor, but I don't know that we know that. Well, by the time of Christ, the high priest was kind of elected by the Sanhedrin, and and he was mostly a political individual. And there's a lot we don't know, and that's one of the things. How, after Aaron passed away, how the, the high priest was chosen. All right, regular attire for the regular priests. They wore the same undergarments of fine twisted linen. Then they had a tunic, covered most of their body from their shoulders down to the ground. They had a sash, but not quite as fancy. Not the same color, blue, purple, and scarlet, which were royal colors. And then they had a headband or cap, which no doubt was not as fancy as the high priests, and which did not have that solid gold plate engraved with holiness to the Lord. And so, here's what we think they may have looked like. Uh, quite a bit less ornate than the, than the high priest. Once Aaron was clothed, Moses poured holy anointing oil on his head and on all the tabernacle furnishings. <clears throat> Only the high priest was anointed with oil. Basically, Moses took a, a, uh, a vial of this holy anointing oil that was, a spe- was specially compounded. It was holy in the fact that it had been set apart by the Lord to be official anointing oil 
and it was poured on his head, on, on Aaron's head. And no doubt it would drip down, drip down onto his beard, a little bit probably drip down on his uh, vestments. <clears throat> and uh, this was a picture that the Holy Spirit was basically empowering the high priest for the ministry that we, he would have. Now, uh, there were other individuals later in Israel who were anointed. Uh, one of them, in addition to the high priest, was the prophet. Okay, so that once again pictured the Holy Spirit's empowerment of the prophet to receive the word of God and to communicate it to people. As the high priest represented the people to their holy God, the prophet represented his holy God to the people. And then the final one who was anointed was the king. There was no person in Israel who had all three of these offices in his one person. Okay, basically the No king of Judah could have been a priest. They weren't from the Levitical family. They were from the tribe of Judah. All right, so you couldn't have a a, a king and a a priest. Uh, You, you um, you know, basically no one. You could, prophets, some of the prophets seemed like they were priests also, but they weren't kings. Okay, only one person who has ever lived had all three of these anointed offices in his one person. And you know who that was. That was Christ. Now everything was set for the three main sacrifices of the ordination ceremony. The sin offering, the burnt offering, and the ordination offering, which was very reminiscent of the peace offering. All right, so let's take a look at these one at a time here. There is a certain logic to this. Of course, the uh, sin offering is what would address the uh, high priest and all the priests' sinful condition. The burnt offering then was a, was a demonstration that these priests were giving themselves entirely to the Lord's service. Many times when a priest was ready to, to undertake his priestly duties, uh, he couldn't go out of the tabernacle, out of, uh, you know, out of the court. Probably they slept in the court and then... Uh, They couldn't go back to their home for the period of time that they were set apart for their duties. And they they didn't own their own land. They didn't have their own cities. Well, they did have cities set apart for them. But they, uh, they were so devoted to the Lord that they, they just didn't behave like average Israelites did. So, Let's take a look, first of all, at verse 14 of 
Leviticus 8. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering, and he killed it, that is Moses. And Moses took the blood and with his uh, finger put it on the horns of the altar uh, around it and purified the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat, and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull and its skin and its flesh and its dung he burned up with fire outside the camp, as the Lord commanded Moses. Notice that's our phrase, as the Lord commanded Moses. And then, next, uh, he, he did the bird offering. Then he presented the ram, verse 18, of the bird offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it, and Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces, and Moses burned the head and the pieces and the fat. He washed the entrails and the legs with water, and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, an offering for the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. Once again, there's our refrain, as the Lord commanded Moses. Nothing in this ordination ceremony was done by chance. It was all what the Lord commanded Moses. All right, so now we have a picture uh, of the completeness of the priest's devotion to God. And just as the entire burnt offering was gone after the offering was completely burned, so the the Levitical priests were completely devoted to the Lord. Finally, the ordination offering. Verse 22. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it, and Moses took some of the blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. So, from head to toe, Aaron is, uh, is uh, manifesting the blood of this ordination sacrifice. Uh, then, verse 25, then he took the fat and the fat tail and all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and the right thigh and out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one of unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of fat <clears throat> on the right thigh. And he put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons, sons and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. So here they are. They're, they're before the Lord. They're moving uh, these pieces of the animal, the sacrificial official animal, back and forth. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. 
This was an ordination off offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination as the Lord commanded Moses. There we have, as the Lord commanded Moses once again. All right, then we have the final consecration of the priests and some special uh, instructions for them. And so uh, in chapter 8, verse 30, Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled on Aaron and his garments and also on his sons and his son's garments. So all these garments were consecrated with special holy oil and with the blood of the uh, ordination sacrifice. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his son's garments with him. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, boil the flesh at the entrance to the tent of meeting and there eat it and the bread that is in the basket of ordination offerings, as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. All right, well, we're going to have to stop here because we're over time already. We'll pick up here, not next week, we have no Sunday school next week, the week after, and uh, we will finish up talking about this special ordination service. All right, let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for the way this ordination service, especially of the high priest, informs us about the holiness of our Savior as the ultimate high priest who would offer himself for us, the just for the unjust, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Help us, we pray, to live for him this week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.